Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia this morning. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, as my microphone wants to fall, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Every once in a while, I am part of a news story that is worth talking about on the show, and and last night was one of those. I moderated, well, I, I didn't really moderate, I did the interview some better way of saying it. I interviewed Nikki Haley on stage in Atlanta last night at the Marcus Jewish Center, which is a phenomenal facility. I had never been. Um, I didn't even know it existed. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful facility. And she was in town. It was the uh, Jewish Book Festival in Atlanta. Uh, and she came. She was the featured speaker. There was a crowd of 1,600. Now, notably, she's been doing these around the country. And uh, she's had uh, 1,500 to 2,000 people show up at every single one of these events. There's a real demand uh, to encounter, uh, spend time with, talk to Nikki Haley, and she did it again last night in Atlanta with a, a huge crowd. Uh, my daughter went with me, sat with her family. Uh, her She's got a, a brother who lives uh, just outside Atlanta. And we spent an hour on stage together talking about her book, her time in the Trump administration, the United Nations, and, and her time growing up, which there's actually a, a, a weird interaction in news stories today. Uh, given what, what's happening now within the conservative movement and the alt-right. But uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on on Nikki. We'll get into the other news that's out there as well, including uh, Stacey Abrams saying the Electoral College is racist and uh, Democrats starting to realize they need to actually have a bipartisan impeachment if they're going to have impeachment. We will take your phone calls as well, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. To begin, so Haley's got her book out, All Due Respect. Uh, It has been a very well-received book, and it spends a lot of time on her background and bio. Uh, she said she could have had someone ghostwrite it, and, and but she wanted it to make sure it was definitely in her voice uh, with a level of authenticity uh, in her voice that might otherwise not come through if someone else uh, had too much of a hand in it. Uh, in particular, because uh, of her background growing up in South Carolina, I, I think most people realize she is Indian American. I do not know that most people realize she was born in uh, Bamberg, South Carolina, which is a tiny town due east of Augusta, uh, out in the middle of nowhere. If you know where Denmark, uh, Denmark, South Carolina is, it is to the southeast of Denmark. So Denmark itself is a tiny town. Bamberg has maybe 2,000 people and a stoplight. And so she grew up there. That's where her parents settled, having moved from India. And, you know, her mother, uh, Nikki's mother, was the first female judge in India. And they would not allow her to sit. Uh, There were threats of violence for her mother to sit uh, in court because... She was a woman, and India had never had a woman before. So they had to. They wind up wound up moving to South Carolina. Her father was a, uh, an accountant. Her mother had a legal background, but also an accounting background. Nikki became an accountant, and they they settled into Bamberg. And it was um, a, a unique upbringing for her 
being the one Indian girl, um, you know, she tells the story. And she's told me this before. I, I You should know, I, I've known Nikki for a long time. Uh, we became friends in 2009. She was running for governor at the time. I was uh, working at Red State. Uh, my buddy Mo Lane said, hey, we should check out the state legislator in South Carolina running for governor. She was running against the lieutenant governor. She was running against the congressman. She was running against the attorney general. Uh, and here comes this little state legislator no one had ever heard of. And she was going around the state on a single issue. The uh, the good old boys in the South Carolina legislature, Republican and Democrat alike, had agreed that they would not do roll call votes for legislation. They would do voice votes. Uh, and that way they could all say they voted against something, even if they passed it by voice vote. It gave the Speaker of the House extraordinary power as well. And so Nikki tried to uh, get past legislation that would require roll call votes for major matters. And they blocked her repeatedly. And she went from being uh, the chair and vice chair of two of the most powerful committees in the state legislature to being stripped of all of her committee roles and people would get up and leave when she spoke in the well of the House. So she decided to run for governor on this transparency issue. And the good old boys came after her. They accused her of all sorts of stuff, um, sexual indiscretion, among other things. They claimed uh, just very, very awful stuff thrown at her. And she won. Nonetheless, she won. She won and became governor of South Carolina and served two terms. But, you know, I so I remember just how proud her parents were. I went over there in 2009 and, and helped her uh, raise money for her. Uh, when Sarah Palin came to endorse Nikki Haley in the spring of 2010, I stood on the stage and uh, made the um, introductions there. She asked me to come over and do that. I drove over to Columbia for that, and we've been friends ever since. And so it was a real honor for her to ask me to to be the interviewer last night on stage in Atlanta. And I, if anything, I got to ask her questions uh, that other people wouldn't know to ask her. For example, uh, her parents told me this incredible story. Her grandparents were very well-to-do people in India. Um, her grandfather was a, a, a very powerful person in India. And her grandparents hated the idea of Nikki's parents leaving India, but there was nowhere for them to go. Um, Nikki's mom being a judge and not allowed to sit. So they moved to the United States. Uh, they took up residency in South Carolina. Nikki was born in uh, Bamberg, South, Bamberg, South Carolina. And her, it was, I think it was her mom and it's her mom's parents. They came over to the United States to visit Nikki's family. And Nikki's mother was vacuuming, if I remember the story right. Nikki's mother was vacuuming. And you've got to understand that that her family in India had servants. And, and as her, her mom said, the servants had servants. Um, it, it, was, it was that sort of family. And the grandparents came over. They come to Bamberg, South Carolina. And Nikki's mother is vacuuming. And her mom says she knew there was something wrong because they sat on the couch and they sat straight up with just look of revulsion at their living quarters. Nothing palatial. It was a small house. And they got up and insisted on going back to the airport. And they flew back to India, horrified to, to see the state of their children and, and, and their grandchildren. 
And that was the world in which Nikki Haley grew up, uh, which is an interesting world to grow up in. In the early 1980s, you know, Nikki last night was talking about how uh, she was in the homecoming pageant and she got disqualified for being Indian because they had a black, uh, it was the prom, I guess, they had a black prom queen and a white prom queen. There was no room for an Indian prom queen. How, how do you, how does an Indian family fit in here? You're either black or you're white in South Carolina. You're not Indian. You're not Asian. And so she was, she was. Was thrown out. And so Nikki's mother had to plead for them to at least let her do the song. She had prepared a song and everything. And so Nikki's mother begged them to let Nikki sing the song. And the song was, this land is your land. This land is my land. And in this land, they said she, she didn't fit. What a story. Um, what, what, a, what a moment. And so this little girl grows up. She gets into the state legislature in South Carolina. She uh, becomes a, a an influential backer of um, of Mark Sanford, who himself is a big reformer in South Carolina as governor, a, a big um, former club for growth guy who becomes governor. And then he goes off to the Appalachian Trail and... Uh, Nikki is is tied to Sanford's reform agenda, and so they try to tie her to his collapse. And uh, her power is gone because she wants transparency, and yet she fights hard and becomes governor. And then in 2015, Emanuel AME Church, that shooting happens. And one of the things Nikki does after several days is she decides they it's time for the Confederate flag to come down from in front of the state capitol. They had moved it from above the state capitol to the front of the state capitol and then had passed a law that it would require two-thirds of each house of the state legislature to approve taking down the flag. And the Senate in South Carolina overwhelmingly agreed, and the Senate agreed because the pastor in charge of Emanuel AME Church was also a state senator. And he was one of the ones murdered in the church. In fact, she, you know, I didn't want to bring this up on stage last night. But we talked right after that, after that shooting. Again, I've known Nikki for a long time. And I just called her to check on her, to pray with her. And she was really shaken up by it. And, And she did mention last night that she heard about the shooting and she didn't know that the senator who was the pastor there had been at the church. He was supposed to be in Columbia. They had a meeting the next morning. And so she called and she left him a voicemail to tell him she was thinking of him. She was, um, she was, um, she would be there the next day. She hoped to see him and on and on. Oh, my goodness. Um, and she said she's just still haunted by the fact that his cell phone was ringing in his pocket as he lay dead on the floor. And it is that person that President Trump chose to be his U.N. ambassador. And she says when the president called, he insisted she take the job. She didn't want the job. And he insisted that she take it, and she said she had conditions, that uh, she needed to be cabinet level. He said, done. She needed to be National Security Council. He said, done. And she needed to be able to to speak her own mind and, and help shape policy as opposed to just taking dictates. And he said, done. And they had a great tenure. Um, she's one of the very few people who was able to get out of the White House 
without the president mean tweeting her. You know, she he mean tweeted both of us back in the day. We, we found some solidarity as friends in the fact that the president was blowing us both up on Twitter. Um, we've since both developed good relationships with the president. Uh, and, and she working in the cabinet for him, helping shape policy, uh, pushing him very hard to get out of the Iran agreement and pushing him very hard to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, which she uh, has thoroughly defended repeatedly, pointing out that one of the reasons the president distrusts experts is because so many experts told him that uh, you couldn't move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem without widespread violence. And when he did it anyway and the violence didn't break out, it just further uh, cast doubts on the value of experts. But there's a there's a side angle here uh, that I want to touch on, and, and I realize this is a roundabout way of getting there. There is controversy today that uh, Michelle Malkin, who I know and have always liked, uh, she is defending a, a group of alt-right um, white nationalists, people who have uh, denied the Holocaust, made jokes about the Holocaust and stuff. And uh, Young America Foundation has uh, taken her off their speakers list. They won't offer her up as a speaker anymore. She's very, very defensive here. But I got to tell you, there's a problem within the conservative movement that there are some, and they're all young. They're all in their their, uh, late teens and early 20s. And they think it is acceptable to deny the Holocaust. One of them... um, saying that Jim Crow was not so bad, uh, that that in Jim Crow they just got to go to, to separate schools and drink from separate water fountains, and that wasn't a big deal. And I got to tell you, uh, I think there's no room in the Confederate, or in the Confederate, in, in the, the conservative movement for Confederate wannabes and Holocaust deniers. I don't think there is. And Nikki spoke about that a little bit last night, uh, that, you know, she had to, to rally her state, including a lot of people who saw the Confederate flag as a matter of pride and heritage, uh, heritage and freedom and liberty and, and uh, defiance of the federal government. She had to convince those people that it was the right thing to do to take that flag down. And she was able to do it. And she is as perturbed as I am at the rise of this alt-right group out there uh, that is increasingly emboldened and, and trying to hijack the president and his supporters into claiming that they are part of this movement of a bunch of racists. And it's sad to see people like Michelle Malkin out there um, who has um, apologized for some of these guys, the Proud Boy movement and and whatnot. Uh, It's unfortunate to see people trying to defend this stuff. There can be no room in the conservative movement for people who deny the Holocaust. And it was good for her, Nikki Haley, to say that last night at that event. Uh, Now, as to the future, and I'm sure this is the question you're all wondering, where is she headed? Listen, I think it's clear. I, I know nothing. We have not talked about it. I have not wanted to talk to her about it because I, I felt like if, if I talked to her about it, I wouldn't be able to talk to you guys about it. So I haven't. So this is just me speculating. I think she would like to run for the presidency. I do. And I think that uh, she would be fantastic if she ran. I think she would be fantastic. And uh, she knows, however, that no one knows what's going to happen next year. A year is a long time in politics. Does the president win or not? Uh, And I suspect there's a lot of thinking in Washington these days among a lot of Republicans who don't want to be public because they don't want you to get mad at them. I'll tell you what they're thinking. They're thinking that the president's not going to win re-election next year. 
Uh, there are a lot of Republicans who think that, that you guys are so focused on the culture war stuff and the president's focused on the culture war stuff. And we're seeing even in Louisiana uh, over the weekend that that sort of stuff is not resonating with the voters as much as Republicans think it is. And if the Democrats have a, a moderate, reasonable person, and that would probably be Joe Biden, if he can hang on, then the president may have trouble. And if the president does have trouble and he doesn't win in 2020, in 2024, the GOP is going to need somebody. And uh, I frankly think Nikki Haley would be awesome. Uh, and she can build bridges again between establishment Republicans and between Trump voters. Uh, she served loyally and ably the president of the United States. There are some within the Trump administration who don't like her because they don't believe she was loyal enough. But, but I think that gives her some latitude. That hate actually helps her to some degree. She is a fascinating person. I, I, I totally do encourage you. Go out and get her book. You can get it on Amazon um, uh, with all due respect. Uh, she's just a, she's a dear friend. She's a great person. It was a great conversation last night in Atlanta with her where I got to interview her on stage in front of 1,600 people showed up for this. And she's been drawing crowds like that across the country. Uh, now, when we come back, uh, one funny anecdote from her about her and the, and the president's tenure, uh, his rocket man comment at the United Nations. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yeah, this event last night, moderating the discussion with Nikki Haley, uh, she gave this funny anecdote about the president where the president called her and asked her to review his first speech to the United Nations. And she reviewed it and she liked the speech very much. She wanted to make some changes and she called the president and she says, Mr. President, I, I need you to understand something about the United Nations. And, and he says, what? And she says, uh, Mr. President, it's not going to be like a campaign rally. She says there was silence. And then, uh, mm -hmm. she says, Mr. President, when you go to the United Nations, there's not going to be a lot of applause from people. She says, think church. You're going to speak in a church. And he says, all right. He says, so let me ask you a question. He says, I, 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 I want to, I want to call uh, Kim Jong-un little rocket man in my speech. And she says, uh, Mr. President, what part of speaking in church did you not understand? <laughs> and she said, you know, I could have these, these frank exchanges with him. And he says, but Nikki, I tweeted it and it played so well with the base. She's, he says, I, I got to work it into my speech for the base. And she says, well, Mr. President, you, you just, you, you do that if you feel the need to, uh, but don't expect there to be a, a big round of applause for you. And he said, that's okay. So he hangs up. She says, so she's there with him at the United Nations. He's given the speech and he calls Korea, uh, North Korea, a little rocket man. And she says, and it takes a minute because most of the UN, they've got little earpieces in their ear and they're listening to translators. And she's, <laughs> he's already moved on in the speech and people start turning to each other and then just chuckling and shaking their heads and smiling. And the North Koreans did not look happy. Um, but she says, so that afternoon she was meeting with the president of Uganda and the president of Uganda shakes her hand and, and uh, says, ambassador, what can we do with this little rocket man? He needs to be stopped. And she says, it just, he began commonly to be referred to as little rocket man after that, that it just worked. <laughs> and she says she, she knew at that moment, the president's ability to define his opponents is, is a, a superpower that he has. 
Uh, it was just it was it was a very interesting conversation. And, you know, she also said that I noted that contrary to a lot of the public images of the president, he's actually a very warm and funny person behind the scenes. You don't get a sense of that in, in the combativeness of the media these days. But the president actually has a very funny sense of humor. I mean, he's called me before uh, and I answered the phone and he says, it's your favorite president. And that's how he answered the phone. That when I said, this is Eric, that's how he responded. Uh, he, he's he's got a very very funny sense of humor. He's a he can be very warm person behind the scenes. It it oftentimes does not translate well with others though. It, it did not translate well in Louisiana, and we should talk about what happened in Louisiana. But man, it, people are rushing to pin it on the president. It wasn't that, uh, but Republicans do need to be mindful of some of the data points that have come out of. Um, South Carolina or out of Louisiana with what happened with John Bell Edwards being reelected in the state. Man, everybody is freaking out. The So the president went to Walter Reed, unscheduled visit, I guess, blood work and whatnot, and, and the media is convinced that he's covering up terminal illness or something. I mean, the, the amount of conspiracy theories over this are, are I mean, really, it is, it's crazy. I've, I've got a friend of mine who's, who's venting, uh, to me in text message during commercial break as well on this that he thinks I, I'm I'm not upset enough by it. Like what what do you expect from this administration? They 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 are um, guarded. Uh, they lack transparency in this sort of stuff. And frankly, they do it intentionally because they know it drives everybody crazy. And in driving everybody crazy, it, it gives them a bit of a win. It does. I don't understand why people are are so fired up otherwise uh, about it. Now, um, I, I need to play a, cu- uh, a a take from you on uh, Barack Obama. And as we set the stage for what happened in Louisiana, you need to hear this clip. Uh, this is Jeff Mason. He was on uh, Meet the Press this weekend. Barack Obama has said perhaps... The Democratic Party to beat Donald Trump needs someone less revolutionary. Barack Obama says this on Friday. This is still a country that is less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. They like seeing things improve, but the average American doesn't think that we have to completely tear down the system and remake it. And I think it's important for us not to lose sight of that. Jeff Mason felt like an obvious shot uh, a bit uh, at the left. But it's I think you hear him saying that and I'm not, it's not lost on me that it's the most pragmatic candidate running so far, Pete Buttigieg, that is now surging in Iowa. Yes, and somebody who's modeling himself in many ways after Obama in terms of strategy. I mean, it's hard not to interpret President Obama's comments there as a hit at Elizabeth Warren and at Bernie Sanders. It's just hard not to. It wasn't a full-throated endorsement of Joe Biden either, but Joe Biden's been working on that on his own by tying himself to his former boss. yeah, um, there's a problem there for the Democrats. And look at what happened in Louisiana. Barack Obama did robocalls encouraging people to go out and vote for John Bell Edwards, a pro-life Democrat who signed fetal heartbeat legislation into law and doesn't support gun confiscation. That's right. The Democrat governor of Louisiana is the last elected pro-life Democrat at a statewide office that I'm aware of. He, he won. 
it was a very close election. Donald Trump had gone into the state multiple times to get people to vote for him. And I got to tell you, the, the level of disingenuousness from a number of, of Trump pundits out there said, oh, I'd have voted for that guy, too. No, you wouldn't have because the president told you to vote for the Republican. You you would not have voted for this guy. But he won and you can't have it tied to the president. You're like, oh, yeah, I'd have voted for that guy, too. You, you know, the, the fact of the matter is uh, John Bell Edwards is a, a Democrat, but he's a Democrat who doesn't scare Republicans. And you can only take so much from this considering Republicans swept every office in Louisiana and, in fact, picked up seats in the state legislature. And, in fact, uh, this will be the most conservative state legislature in uh, Louisiana history. I am a native of Louisiana. Seeing this state move that conservative is impressive to me. And yet they lost the governor's mansion. And if you will allow me, well, you you have no choice because I'm going to do it whether you like it or not. Uh, Let me break down what's actually happening beyond all the partisan spin on both sides on this. Um, Donald Trump did have an impact in Kentucky and Louisiana. Donald Trump did turn off voters in both states. Uh, he was closely tied to Matt Bevin. He was closely tied to John Bell Edwards. Hell, in Georgia, he was closely tied to, to Brian Kemp. And Brian Kemp uh, didn't do as well as he could have because people don't like the president and they don't like candidates perceived as tied to the president. But uh, he was not fatal to any of these candidates. Certainly wasn't to Brian Kemp, but he wasn't to Matt Bevin because Matt Bevin had a host of personal issues. And with uh, the Republican in Louisiana, he had a host of issues too. Scott, I can't even say the guy's name now. Uh, Louisiana Republican voters picked the wrong guy, frankly. They should have gone with Congressman Abraham, not this guy. Uh, and they, they chose not to do that. And he lost. And he lost because he tried to make the race about a couple of things. And there are lessons for Republicans here. We see these lessons in uh, a host of states. The Republican in Louisiana tried to make the race about the Democrat. He didn't provide an alternative other than I'm with Donald Trump. Voters, you see this in Georgia with Brian Kemp. Voters will give, not all of them, but enough of them, will give Republicans a pass for being tied to Donald Trump if the voters like the Republicans' agenda. It is time that we just come and accept the fact that in the suburbs, voters are increasingly put off by President Trump. It's just a fact Uh, Now, in some states, that doesn't matter. In other states, it does. In Louisiana, it matters. There aren't a lot of suburbs in Louisiana, but the ones that there are, they matter. And they're willing to give Republicans a pass who have agenda items that they like, even if they don't like the president. And that is the key here. You need to understand. It's not just about the president. If you run for office, take Brian Kemp, for example, you run for office and you are tied to President Trump, you're going to lose unless you do what Brian Kemp did here in Georgia. You have your own agenda. You assert that you are your own man. You have your own ideas. You have your own public policy. You have your own thinking about doing things. You like the president. You're thankful for your, your his support, but you're not the president. You're your own man. That's what Brian Kemp did. 
Matt Bevin in Kentucky did not do that. Matt Bevin in Kentucky, nobody liked the guy. And so he ran completely as I'm Donald Trump's candidate. Vote for me to support the president. And people weren't willing to do that. That that turned some people off. He had none of his own ideas. He was just President Trump's candidate. In Louisiana, the Republican did the exact same thing. He had no ideas. He was a, a rich businessman with no platform. His entire platform was vote for me to vote for the president. Vote for me to stop socialism. The Republicans in Louisiana had had John Bell Edwards for four years, and he was not a socialist to them. My goodness, he was nothing like a Huey Long. He was nothing like an Edwin Edwards. He was nothing like a Buddy Romer, uh, the first Republican governor in, in Louisiana when I was a kid. He was his own man. You may not like some of his policies, and, and my parents, for example, voted against uh, John Bell Edwards. They're, they're yellow dog Republicans at this point, to a degree. But Edwards wasn't, you couldn't scare people about John Bell Edwards. And so Republicans running on socialism and transgenderism and uh, democratic radicalism, it doesn't work. It does not work. You, you've got to give people a reason to vote for you, not just against the other side. And Matt Bevin did not give people a reason to vote for him. He gave people a reason to vote against the other side, and, and it didn't work. Same in Louisiana. Same thing holds true in Virginia. In Virginia, Republicans were swept out of power, and in large part, they were swept out of power because they decided to run culture war issues. They did not actually run issues that resonated with voters. Re Republican voters, by and large, are not the socially conservative voters they claim to be. They are vastly more concerned about their 401k. And if they think you're going to rock the boat on their 401k rating, bonds, you name it, uh, they're going to vote against you. And Republican voters in Louisiana uh, could not persuade enough other people out there that uh, John Bell Edwards was going to be bad for the economy, bad for the stock market, bad for their investments. They couldn't persuade people enough because he had a track record. And in Virginia, it was the exact same way with Republicans swept out of the legislature. They could not persuade people they were anything other than Trump supporters. And again, voters are willing to give you a pass if you are a Trump-supporting candidate, if you stand for your own thing. We saw this in Kentucky, where Republicans swept every position and made gains in the state legislature to get a supermajority, but they lost Matt Bevin's seat to a Democrat. In Louisiana, the Republicans swept every race, they made gains in the state legislature. They moved the state to the right, but they lost the governor's mansion because the Republican offered no agenda, no platform, no ideas. All he did was offer his undying and unwavering loyalty to President Trump, and voters rejected that. So the moral of the story for the Republicans is you got to be your own man. You've got to be your own man. You've got to stand for something. You've got to take positions. And unfortunately, I think the Republican Party these days is, is increasingly devoid of ideas. It's all about the president. Now, to be fair to the GOP, and I've had more than one Republican in Congress vent frustratingly to me, uh, that it's a, they have a hard time taking stands because the president may very well uh, change his mind. He can change his mind on a dime. And when the president changes his mind on a dime, they, they don't want to stake out a claim. They, they, they don't want to stake out a claim and then have the president undermine them. They don't want to stake out a claim 
and have the president do a role reversal. I mean, Republicans for years oppose tariffs. The president gets elected, uh, and he gets elected largely in rejecting tariffs. And the Republicans are suddenly now in a position where they're having to defend the rejection of tariffs after years, uh, ideologically putting themselves in a position to uh, oppose tariffs. It is, it's, it's kind of unbelievable that the Republicans can turn on a dime ideologically, institutionally, fundamentally, um, morally, because of what the president thinks. But they've got to come up with ideas. If they're going to win in, 20, in 2020, they need ideas. They need ideas at the state level. They need ideas at the federal level. They need ideas beyond whatever the president says. And frankly, the president himself needs some ideas. The president cannot go around campaigning just on uh, Democrats bad. If the president campaigns on just the idea that the Democrats are bad, he's going to have a real hard time winning re-election. And we know the president has a good message. We know the president has a, a, a path forward. We we know the president uh, has the ability to galvanize voters. We know the president has the ability to to um, give people reasons to vote for him. Here's the president in Atlanta the other day. Nearly 7 million people have been lifted off, very importantly, food stamps. 7 million people off of food stamps. And we're getting Americans off of welfare and back into the workforce. <laughs> Nearly 2.5 million Americans have risen out of poverty. That's a record. The rate of African-American and Hispanic-American families in poverty has plummeted to the lowest level ever recorded by far. Most of you people wouldn't know these numbers because most of you aren't very active in the market. But since my election, the S&P 500 is up over 45 percent, the Dow Jones is up over 50 percent, and the NASDAQ is up 60 percent. Now, my apologies. That was the president speaking to the investors group in New York. That was not him speaking to the uh, group in Atlanta. Um, let me find. Uh, th this is the the president speaking uh, in Atlanta. We're undoing the damage inflicted by decades of corrupt Democrat rule and creating a historic tide of new opportunity and prosperity. We've done more for African-Americans in three years than the broken Washington establishment has done in more than 30 years. We've created 6.7 million new jobs since the election, a number that if I would have said that to the fake news media back there, look at all those cameras. If I would have said that, now if I would have said that during the campaign, I would have been excoriated they would have gone wild. How dare he make 6.7 million new jobs. Think of that. Since the election, last month, the African-American unemployment rate reached the lowest level ever recorded in the history of our country. How do you lose that argument in a debate, right? The African-American youth unemployment, this was so important to me. You remember how high it was, 60, 70 percent, has now reached the lowest number ever recorded in the history of our country. Doing really well. 
The African-American poverty rate has reached an all-time historic low, lowest it's ever been. For the first time ever, most new hires of prime working age are minorities and women. First time that's ever happened. One more from the president uh, speaking to the crowd in Atlanta. We revitalized distressed neighborhoods. We created 9,000 opportunity zones. Tim Scott of South Carolina was incredible on that. Including 26 right here in Atlanta. Eight million African-Americans live in opportunity zones, yet every Democrat voted against giving these black citizens the future they deserve. The Republicans got it passed. Not easy. We had no votes from Democrats. And now the Democrats are saying we made a big mistake, but they're never going to admit that publicly, I can guarantee you. But they were totally against it. Now, this is a message that resonates. The president has an agenda. The president has a, a economic um, agenda that works. The president is able to go to black voters and say, hey, look what I've done for you. Look what I've done for your community. Community, Look, look at the revitalization of your community. Look at uh, young black men getting out of jail. Look at prison reform. Look at the economy. Look at your 401k. Look at your jobs. Look at the unemployment. Look at all of these things. This is what I got for you. And that's the message that works. That is the message that will resonate. They need to do that more. They didn't do that in Louisiana. They didn't do that in Kentucky. What they did was Democrats bad. That they, they missed that part of the message, the part of the message that they need. They spent so much time. Uh, I, I, this, for example, this is the president also speaking to uh, the black voters in Atlanta. Democrats want to invest in green global projects. I want to invest in black American communities. crowd love that line well we can stop it there um he didn't really add to that and if the president wants to juxtapose himself to the democrats that's fine but he's just attacking the democrats it's not working it didn't work in louisiana it didn't work in kentucky it's not working in virginia uh and this should be a warning sign for the gop you cannot just go out and bash the democrats you want to we all want to bash the democrats they've gotten so wackadoo out there and the democrats are clearly nervous so much so that barack obama is out there saying we don't need revolutionaries running for president the united states is not as revolutionary as some of these people think and he's right but you got to have a message beyond that. You've got to be able to compare and contrast. Don't just attack the, the Democrats. That was the problem in Louisiana. Yes, the president turned off some people and the president mobilized some people. In fact, uh, there there is evidence in, in some of the suburban areas of New Orleans that uh, the president's presence in that state campaigning for the Republican mobilized a lot of uh, swing, swing suburban voters. There were some precincts that turned out at presidential level in 2018 and turned out even higher than presidential level. Think about that higher than presidential level this year for the governor's race. That's a pretty staggering turnout in Louisiana for that just doesn't happen. And it did, but it can be offset if you had a message to sell and the message to sell is the economy. The message to sell is a stable foreign policy. The message to sell is jobs. It's not just Democrats are bad and Democrats are socialists and Democrats will wreck everything, but look how well we're doing. If the GOP will stay focused on that, they can mitigate a lot of these problems.
It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Them's the phone numbers. Uh, Well, it's only one phone number, but different, given to you in different ways. Uh, And be sure to text RECIPE to 33777 if you want to sign up for the recipe list. Uh, More recipes coming out. Uh, I've been so busy, I've gotten bad about it, but I I promise you I will get out the recipes. Um, One of them did not go out the other day. i got to figure out what I'm doing wrong. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, we got other stuff we got to talk about. Um, You absolutely need to consider... The Colin Kaepernick. And, you know, I may wait on the Colin Kaepernick stuff. You know, he came to Atlanta and he he did his big uh, NFL thing. Well, here, here's here's some of the audio. Let me start by saying I appreciate y'all coming out. That means a lot to me. Our biggest thing with everything today was making sure we had transparency in what went on. We weren't getting that elsewhere, so we came out here. It's important that y'all are here. Y'all been attacked for the last three years. Y'all continue to be attacked. We appreciate what y'all do. We appreciate you being here today. We appreciate the work you do for the people and telling the truth. That's what we want in everything. I've been ready for three years. I've been denied for three years. We all know why I came out here, showed it today in front of everybody. We have nothing to hide. So we're waiting for the 32 owners, the 32 teams, Roger Goodell, all of them to stop running. Stop running from the truth. Stop running from the people. We're out here, we're ready to play. We're ready to go anywhere. My agent, Jeff Nally, is ready to talk to any team. i interview with any team at any time. I've been ready. I'm staying ready. And I'll continue to be ready. And to all the people that came out here today to support, I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. To the people that aren't here, I'm thinking of you. I appreciate you supporting from where you are. You know, I, I don't normally agree with Stephen A. Smith, but he points out that Kaepernick's not really ready. And perhaps never was. Uh, you know, he made the choice. He made the choice to drag politics into the NFL, changed his story as to why he was doing it. Uh, first, he was just protesting police, and then it actually did become about the flag and injustice in America and, and the problems with America. Uh, and he chose instead to sell shoes for Nike, and he's doing quite well selling shoes for Nike. La Resistance loves Colin Kaepernick, uh, but you know who doesn't like him? The fans. Uh, the, the Patriots showed up um, to, to cover him, and they're about the only ones. Um, and nobody sent people who can make the call. They, they just did it for show. For the PR. It is that time for me to tell y'all how awesome the Quip electric toothbrush is. Don't don't fast forward through this. Stick around. Listen. Uh, because it's the truth. I use my Quip every day. My daughter uses hers. My wife uses hers. We got to get our 10-year-old on a regular brushing schedule. I'm, he's That's another story for another day. Quip is a great toothbrush, folks. Uh, you can go out, as I have, and buy the $100 Sonic toothbrushes uh, that supposedly do some sort of brilliant job. They don't fit in the back of my mouth. I don't think they fit in the back of anybody's mouth. They're so poorly designed. And you got to char- take the charger with you wherever you go. It's, it, they're terrible in design. The Quip was designed, you can tell, by Denison designers working together. It fits in the back of your mouth, so you can get a good brushing at the back of your teeth. Uh, it, it vibrates uh, great for two minutes. Get your teeth really clean every 30 seconds. It pulses, you can, so you know it's time to move it in your mouth to a different location, so you get an even cleaning. It is great, and every three months, they send you a new brush head uh, on a subscription service. It is great. Um, everything is designed 
great with Quip. It works on a single AAA battery. You don't have to carry a charger with you. I just, I, I really do love this product. I've been using my Quip for two years. Well before I ever advertised for them on radio, I was using Quip because I like them. Uh, it generates great, healthy toothbrushing habits. My dentist keeps thinking I'm bleaching my teeth. I'm not just on and on. I could brag about it, but see it for yourself. Go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now. You'll get your first refill pack free. That's your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. That's G E T Q U I P.com slash E R I C K S O N getquip.com slash Erickson. Start brushing your teeth with healthy habits with Quip. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Uh, if you want to call in, uh, I, I'm I'm going to hijack my own show uh, on a, a personal note here. It, it's actually a rather bitter, well, more bitter than sweet. Uh, day. Uh, I, I will be out tomorrow. Uh, Chris Burns will be filling in. Ironically, the, this hour is sponsored by Dynamic Money. Um, Dynamic Money is Chris's, Chris Burns' shop, Dynamic Money. They're our financial planner, my wife and me. Uh, good people. Uh, they can work with you anywhere. If you want to come up with a plan for retirement, you want to come up with a plan to pay down your debts, you just want to get uh, more knowledge on how to deal with your family finances or give your kids knowledge on dealing with finances, uh, Dynamic Money is the place to go, dynamicmoney.com. We thank them for their sponsorship, and and I really do use them. I really am a customer, so I'm delighted to have this partnership with them. Chris will be filling in for me tomorrow, and he'll be filling in for me tomorrow because uh, every three months with metronomic regularity, my wife goes in for her lung scans. My wife's got a form of cancer uh, that is there is no cure for it, uh, but it can be kept the tumors from growing. They can't get rid of the tumors, but they can get them from growing. Uh, with this medicine, which typically works for two years, we are now into the third year, and thank God it's still working. Um, and we go with increasing apprehension every three months because the medicine's supposed to stop working, and there's no alternative medicine for when it stops working. Um, so I will be distracted tomorrow, uh, and I'm somewhat distracted today. And on top of this, uh, three doors down from us is just one of the sweetest couples. Um, their kids and our kids are friends. They go to school together. Uh, they play in our house and their house and in the street together. Uh, the, the cul-de-sac soccer, um, in our, our little Mayberry and, um, the poor sweet wife wasn't feeling well and laid down yesterday and never woke up. Um, so we as a neighborhood and, and as friends and family, we are dealing with a, a loss that hurts us all tremendously and, and coming on the heels of my wife's on scans. Uh, it has certainly done a number on me. Um, so prayers appreciated all around for the green family and for our family as Christy goes in for her scans tomorrow. It is a heavy day here in the Erickson household. Uh, now that being said, we, we do have news that we have to get to. Um, we cannot have a pity party on the radio. You people have places to go and things to do and need the news. And the news is up front. Uh, Brian Kemp is shutting down, uh, applications after today. No more applications. You get to 5 p.m. today and done. If you want to be in the United States Senate, if you want the chance to be in the United States Senate from Georgia, you must file your application today or else. Uh, 
uh, you will be out of luck. Um, it is, uh, the governor has dragged it out, uh, intentionally so. They, they do have some strategy in here. And part of that strategy is they were kind of waiting to see what the Democrat play would be, also waiting to see if any Democrats, man, the Democrats, they are mad as all get out at Matt Lieberman. I got to tell you, so I, I, if you weren't here the first hour, last night I interviewed Nikki Haley at the uh, Jewish Center in Atlanta. Uh, she was in town. It's the Jewish Book Festival of Atlanta. They had a, she was the featured speaker. They had 1,600 people showed up. And it was a very diverse crowd, mostly Jewish crowd, but it was very, very diverse. A lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats. Um, did not get an overwhelming reception when she said she was pro-life. Some people clapped. Uh, she did get an overwhelming reception when she talked about uh, standing with the president on moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And uh, the president got a pretty big round of applause from the crowd. Uh, but what was so interesting there with all of it is uh, the um, there there's this underlying question of the direction of the country and where we're headed and underlying direction in Georgia about where Georgia is headed. And the Democrats are really, really livid with Matt Lieberman, who is Joe Lieberman's son, who is running for the Senate, and they're they're livid with him because he has essentially pushed them to have to make decisions they did not want to have to make up front. Um, Brian Kemp dragged out the Senate race and the Senate nominations process. One, because he wanted to give people as much opportunity as possible to file their application to be a senator. And two, he wanted to drag it out as long as possible to see if the Democrats would do something. And Matt Lieberman was the Democrat who did something. Lieberman jumped into the race. He is not wanted by the Democrats. He is not supported by the Democrats. The Democrats like him, but like him on the sidelines. They do not like him now because he was running. The reason you need to understand is, one, he's a nobody as far as the Democrats are concerned, and two, he's not black. We're not supposed to say this. But it's true. The Democrats want a black person. They want a black person because they think that Stacey Abrams galvanized voters in 2018, in part because she galvanized black voters to turn out. And the Democrats in Georgia have decided that the best way to get voters to turn out in Georgia is to have a black statewide candidate who fires up the base. And guess who's running against David Perdue? A bunch of white people. You've got uh, Terry uh, Ted Terry's hyper-progressive mayor of Clarkston, Georgia. You've got Sarah Riggs Amico, uh, who voted for Mitt Romney against Barack Obama. You've got uh, Teresa Tomlinson, who nobody likes. And now you've got John Ossoff, who will probably wind up being the nominee because of his his ability to raise money. And and he's standing in as the proxy for black voters because he's got Hank Johnson and John Lewis supporting him. But he, he's it's not good enough. It's not good enough for him. So you got to find someone. And the Democrats are trying to find someone to run again in Johnny Isaacson's seat. And they would like to get a Michael Thurman or someone. But they have a problem. Who is the governor going to nominate? 
See, for those of you listening outside of Georgia, the, some states, the governor's not allowed to appoint. And in some states, the governor has to appoint from the parties being replaced. And that is kind of irrelevant here because the governor is going to appoint a Republican to replace Johnny Isaacson. And Isaacson wants to be gone at the end of the year. And uh, there's a Senate impeachment trial more likely than not coming. And uh, there were a lot of Republicans hoping that Johnny would hang on and wait until the impeachment trial was over. But Johnny wants to leave. He's not in great health. So the governor's got to make a pick. And he would like to make a pick now um, in the next week or two as Thanksgiving comes. It gives people into the Christmas break uh, to settle in, get this person settled in. Perhaps Johnny will leave sooner rather than later so that this person can go into the Senate. The only thing anybody's going to want to ask about his impeachment. What, what, what's your stand on the president? I have advised several of the of, of the people, full disclosure, several of them have reached out to me and picked my brain on, if the governor were to pick me, what should I say on impeachment? And my response to all of them was, uh, you are concerned by the lack of, of bipartisanness, uh, of, of bipartisanship when it comes to impeachment, that uh, you think that this is probably best settled at the election, given it's a partisan affair. Uh, and But beyond that, you will wait and see where the Democrats turn up because you will be a juror and you need to be able to deal objectively with what the Democrats find. I think that's a fair position. By the way, the, the, the partisan nature of impeachment is becoming something even reporters are starting to talk about. Here's Molly Ball talking about it this weekend on the Sunday shows. fact is, this is a partisan impeachment. It was mm -hmm. a, the, When they had the vote, it was a almost purely party line vote. Only Democrats are for it. They can't do anything about that if the Republicans don't want to come along. Uh, but, they, but she's trying as hard as she possibly can to cast this in nonpartisan terms. She's talking about Nancy Pelosi trying to cast it nonpartisan. It's not going to work. And the Democrats understand they got a problem here, but it, it, it will play out in the Senate race here in Georgia as well. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams is back, and I want to spend a little bit of time on Stacey Abrams. She has declared the Electoral College racist. Is the time for the electrical the Electoral College passed? Yes. Electoral College is racist and classist. We have to remember the Electoral College was not designed because people were worried about Idaho not having enough votes. We didn't know about Idaho. What we did know... We didn't. But what we did know was that in the South, the populations in the South had equal or roughly equal populations to the North. However, because black people were not considered human or citizens, they wanted their bodies to count for the purposes of the population count, but not their humanity. And the Electoral College was designed to give Southern states the ability to count the bodies of slaves, but not have to allow them to cast votes. And thus the Electoral College was born as a compromise. The other challenge was that in the North, a lot of them didn't want immigrants making decisions and they didn't believe that immigrants and that those who were not considered well-educated should be making decisions about who the executive of our nation should be. So it was a combination of racism and classism. Both of those things should be flung to the far reaches of history and the Electoral College needs to go. Uh, the Electoral College needs to go because it's racist. You know, th that is so counterfactual to the history of the Electoral College. If you'll allow, I want to play the Abrams clip again, and I want to walk through the Abrams clip. Let, let's, let's listen to this together again, shall we? Is the time for the, electrical, the Electoral the College electrical. pass? Yes. Electoral College is racist. And Why does she say it's racist? racist? We have to remember the Electoral College was not designed because people were worried about Idaho not having enough votes. We didn't know about Idaho. What we did know... 
by the way, let me just stop here. Some of you will get mad at me for saying something nice about Stacey Abrams. And by the way, I, I think Stacey Abrams is a, a super smart lady. We just disagree on politics. Uh, every encounter I've had with her has been pleasant in large part because she has a great sense of humor. Um, she is very quick-witted on her feet, and I like that in a politician. She's also very self-deprecating. Uh, I know plenty of politicians on the right who cannot laugh at themselves, and to a person, they're all people you would not want to hang out with. Stacey Abrams is someone, whether you agree with her or not, she actually can uh, make a joke about herself, and I find it endearing when a politician in high-profile jobs can make jokes about themselves. But she's wrong here. We didn't. But what we did know was that in the South, the populations in the South had equal or roughly equal populations to the North. However, because black people were not considered human or citizens, they wanted their bodies to count for the purposes of the population count, but not their humanity. And she's right. And the northern states said no. And the southern states would not go along with the Constitution unless they can. So the northern states came up with the three-fifths compromise, where slaves would count as three-fifths of a person. It was not for racism. You need to understand this. The South wanted a one-for-one one pick, and the North said absolutely not. Uh, we're not going to count a slave as, as equal to a voting citizen since they cannot vote and give the southern slave states more power than they deserve. They did this to limit southern power. And the Electoral College was designed to give southern states the ability to count the bodies of slaves but not have to allow them to cast votes. That's not true either. The Electoral College was a completely separate compromise. The Electoral College was a compromise about the smaller states. Remember, Virginia was a huge state. Georgia was growing, and you had smaller states up north who were worried about the slave states dominating. I mean, th this is the, the weird thing. History is upside down. Uh, the major compromises she's pointing to, the three-fifths compromise and the Electoral Compromise, they were actually about limiting the power of slave states. It was the small states, mostly in New England, who did not like and support and defend slavery, and they were afraid slave states would become dominant both in selecting the president and in uh, con congressional representation. And so to go along, the southern states drew very bright boundaries in what they would and would not do. They would not compromise on, on not counting states uh, slaves at all, so the northern states reduced the 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 one to one count that slaves would have, so that the South would go along with the Constitution, but not have as much power as they otherwise would have gotten. And the Electoral College was put in place so that people running for president could not rely on the direct population vote in Southern states that outnumbered the people in Northern states. the The smaller Northern states were deeply worried that they would be forgotten as presidential candidates catered to large states, New York. Pennsylvania uh, and Virginia in particular. Virginia was the most dominant state. The majority of, of early presidents came from Virginia because it was so dominant. And the Electoral College was designed to take away the power of Virginia, a slave state, in favor of states like Vermont and, and the main area that um, did not have as many people. And as a result, um, could not give people the, the popular vote in a way those other states could. And thus the Electoral College was born as a compromise. The other challenge was... It, it, no, that that's historically wrong. And I hear more and more people on the left say this. It, it is factually historically wrong. It is uh, the, the Madison Diaries over what happened in the Constitutional Convention uh, completely discredit that worldview. 
the Federalist Papers completely discredit that worldview. You got a bunch of people from non-slave states who feared the rise of the slave states. Remember, you had Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner, writing about how we needed to get rid of slavery in the United States. It could not be done if we wanted to keep the country together. And so it was decided that they would ratify the Constitution, they would put the country together, and then they would fight it out. None of them foresaw a civil war. They thought they'd be able to do with it diplomatically. They thought they'd be able to freeze out slavery. Remember, there's another compromise in the Constitution that you would not be allowed to import slaves into this country. After like 1800, you would be prohibited from importing slaves into this country. All of the compromises in the Constitution relating to slaves were northern states trying to keep the country together without giving the southern slave states too much power. You can say, well, then maybe we should not have had a country, and that's great in your 21st century privilege. But in the 18th century, they knew Britain was going to come back, and there was, there was going to be another war, and they wanted solidarity. They knew the Articles of Confederation weren't working, and they had to make compromises to get it all together. It is historically inaccurate to say otherwise, and it's unfortunate to see a pol politician as prominent as Stacey Abrams revising history to suit her narrative of injustice. <laughs> I texted Charlie and said, I interviewed Nikki in Atlanta last night and AJC has a blurb on it. Never mentions who the interviewer was. He's like, who? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that would, that would be uh, the, the former governor of South Carolina, former UN ambassador uh, interviewed her in Atlanta last night. Um, now in, in fairness, it's in the political insider column in the AJC and they, they do mention me uh, in their analysis of the Louisiana race, but but not on stage. That's all right. Um, the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I want to go back to Colin Kaepernick, who came to Atlanta. Let's play the audio again. Let me start by saying I appreciate y'all coming out. That means a lot to me. Our biggest thing with everything today was making sure we had transparency of what went on. We weren't getting that elsewhere. So we came out here. It's important that y'all are here. Y'all been attacked for the last three years. Y'all continue to be attacked. We appreciate what y'all do. We appreciate you being here today. We appreciate the work you do for the people and telling the truth. That's what we want in everything. I've been ready for three years. I've been denied for three years. We all know why I came out here, showed it today in front of everybody. We have nothing to hide. So we're waiting for the 32 owners, the 32 teams, Roger Goodell, all of them to stop running. Stop running from the truth. Stop running from the people. We're out here. We're ready to play. We're ready to go anywhere. My agent, Jeff Nally, is ready to talk to any team. I interview with any team at any time. I've been ready. I'm staying ready. And I'll continue to be ready. And to all the people that came out here today to support, I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. To the people that aren't here, I'm thinking of you. I appreciate you supporting from where you are. We'll continue to give you updates as we hear. We'll be waiting to hear from Roger Goodell, the NFL, the 32 teams. We'll let you know if we hear from them. Ball's in their court. We're ready to go. So Kaepernick was going to do this at the Braves training facility in Flowery Branch. And then he moved it uh, to a high school field in Riverdale, Georgia. And uh, he decided to go blasting the NFL, the NFL sensitive to Kaepernick making this all political. 
And then he goes and, and blasts the NFL. It, it doesn't seem to me like he really wants to play football. Stephen A. Smith kind of said the same thing. And and by the way, um, Stephen A. Smith said this, that, that Kaepernick did not actually want to play uh, for the NFL. Um, and Smith put up a video saying essentially that Kaepernick called an audible. He said that Kaepernick had no interest playing in the NFL. And, um, oh, Eric Reed from the Carolina Panthers uh, went after him on this, and uh, Smith pushed back on him as well. Uh, he said it was absolute nonsense. Uh, Colin Kaepernick wants to control a narrative, uh, and he doesn't actually want to play. And when Reed took after him, Smith said that it was ridiculous that by the way, uh, Reed had to go play for the NFL that he claims doesn't want black people playing or some such. Uh, the whole thing's hypocritical. It's nonsensical. Uh, and Kaepernick's not coming back into the game, probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling here as we come back from commercial break. We, we rarely get phone callers. Uh, on to the, on to the show. We we are you're welcome to call in. Um, agree, disagree, ask questions, whatever. Eight seven seven nine seven Eric. Eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. But if the Facebook feed gets unstable, holy lord, do we get phone calls from people complaining? <laughs> okay. Um, a little bit more on on Kaepernick before we get into the other stuff here. Um. So here are the details from Stevie Smith that he points out. Kaepernick was going to do the training at the Atlanta Falcons practice facility. It's state-of-the-art. There would be NFL personnel there. There'd be equipment. There'd be video. Uh, there'd be all sorts of things there. And all of the people who were going to go see Kaepernick headed to Flowery Branch. The Atlanta Falcons training facility is in Flowery Branch, up 985, headed to Gainesville. And they all headed that way. And then Kaepernick announced he was actually going to do it at a high school football field in Riverdale, Georgia, by the airport. So completely opposite direction from where he was going to do it. And he was going to do it in public and stream it on YouTube. And Smith, uh, this is Smith saying he, he, he doesn't want to play. He wants to be the martyr. Guess what? It, it ain't working this time. All of us believe Kaepernick would have shown out, uh, showed out, if, and if he showed out, he would have had a job within two weeks, but it didn't happen because he didn't show. He wanted to show up at a high school in Georgia, not an NFL facility, and then he wanted to put it on YouTube, uh, run it YouTube Live. Uh, you don't want to work. You just want to make noise. You want to be in control of the narrative. It's over. When you got Stephen A. Smith, a guy who has uh, been a, a champion of Kaepernick, blasting Kaepernick, saying this is all for show, you know Kaepernick's got problems. He overplayed his hand. He's not going to get that job in the NFL. Kaepernick does want to be a martyr, and there are a lot of people in the media who want to make him martyr. They don't like the NFL. Uh, they don't like the they don't like the Redskins. Man, you know who doesn't like the Redskins? Washington hates the Redskins right now. I have not kept up all this, but my buddy Jamie Dupree, uh, who works with me at, at Cox Media, he sent me a note this morning and said, you know, the real scandal in Washington and is getting bipartisan outrage is uh, the Redskins. People are actually chanting at the game, sell the team, sell the team. It has nothing to do with the team name. It has to do with the team's performance. People are really upset with the state of play of the Redskins right now. Uh, they're giving up. 
Uh, the Redskins tickets just a few years ago were sold out. You can get them now uh, online for less than the price of a movie ticket in Washington, D.C. It is amazing. I've got friends of mine who are lifelong Redskins fans who grew up in, in northern Virginia. The Redskins were the home team, went to every game, and they don't go anymore. They, they don't even want to watch the game. They're so disgusted with it. Uh, so I'm at this I'm at this uh, event last night with Nikki Haley at the Jewish Center in Atlanta. And uh, the, you've got the, the Marcus area. There's the, the Arthur, Arthur Blank has contributed money. Bernie Marcus has contributed money. I thought about making a dig about the, the Falcons uh, at the, at the thing, although they did beat the Saints, so they got that going for them. Uh, but I, I decided I probably better not since, since Arthur Blank had given so much money to the place. It would have been rude. <laughs> but, man, Kaepernick, however, Kaepernick is, is going to be toast. He decided to politicize everything. Well, uh, the Democrats are coming to Atlanta. Pete Buttigieg is going to be on tour, uh, running around the state. We're going to hear a lot of them on Thursday. I will give you, so I'm going to be gone tomorrow with Christy, uh, for her oncology scans and I'll be back on Wednesday and on Thursday, I believe David Perdue is going to, he's going to call me early Thursday and we're going to record an interview together to discuss uh, the Democratic debate. And I will record the phone call uh, and play it for you on on Thursday. The Democrats will debate Wednesday night at Tyler Perry Studio. It's going to be the all-female debate, MSNBC. They're, they're going to be an all-woman panel. Uh, in the run-up to this, Kamala Harris is being told by Democrats she should get out of the race, that she's going to damage her reputation long-term. A new polling in California has Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg beating Kamala Harris in California, where she is the senator for the state of California. She's run a terrible campaign as she heads to Georgia. I want to talk about Kamala Harris really quickly before we got because Kamala Harris to me is a candidate that seems to fill all those boxes. She mm-hmm. would be fundamental change. She's a woman of color. I cannot explain why she isn't resonating more because the fundamentals of her still seem really good to me if you want somebody who will change the perspective of what America looks like right. but not have as much change as maybe people think Warren is too much change. So- so that's Joy Reid on MSNBC. You've got actually a report out over the weekend that uh, maybe it's racism that's keeping Kamala Harris down. People don't like her because she's black, which that would be a problem in the Democratic primary because why they gave it to Barack Obama, but she's too black. For, I, I, I don't understand the thinking here. Uh, that tends to be the the narration of a candidate who is losing, the narration of a candidate who is lost. Uh, their narration of a candidate who is on the verge of, of collapse and is desperately clinging to excuses. And the excuse she's hit on is I'm black. They don't like me because I'm black. Uh, Cory Booker's not saying that. Deval Patrick just got in. He's black. They're not saying that. Barack Obama didn't have that problem. Why is it that Kamala Harris is, is the one that suddenly it's, oh, because she's a black woman. Yeah, that's the actual excuse here, folks, is that Kamala Harris is a black woman. And if she were a black man, everyone would be okay. But because she's a black woman, she's not supposed to. Listen, I'm just I'm giving you the excuse. Don't be mad at me. Don't you be mad at me for saying this. This is exactly what what the people close to Kamala Harris are saying is that she's a black woman. And it's the black plus woman thing that's the problem. But one more time on this, Joy Reid. Joy Reid, the the woman who the FBI is still investigating, who said those nasty things on her website. This is her. 
I want to talk about Kamala Harris really quickly before we got because Kamala Harris to me is a candidate that seems to fill all those boxes. She mm -hmm. would be fundamental change. She's a woman of color. I cannot explain why she isn't resonating more because the fundamentals of her still seem really good to me if you want somebody who will change the perspective of what America looks like. Right but not have as much change as maybe people think Warren is too much change. So, so in other words, she's a black female. So she gives you change and uh, diverse change, but she's not as radically to the left of as Elizabeth Warren. So you're not as rebellious. This goes back to the Barack Obama comment from earlier. Barack Obama saying the, the Democrats don't need to elect a, or nominate a revolutionary right now. And they're having all sorts of problems with poor Kamala, who is is flailing about, not exactly sure uh, what she's doing, where she's headed, what's going on. Um, it, the problem here is that Kamala Harris doesn't really understand what she believes. She's flip-flopped on pretty much every issue out there. Uh, she has taken every position, uh, competing positions at times, on various things. She can't explain. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, for all of her faults on, on Medicare for All, and there's more and more data showing that that's going to sink her. In fact, as she has staked her name to Medicare for All, Pete Buttigieg is now ahead of her in Iowa. Um, for all of her faults, though, she came out with a plan. She's come out with a plan, and she's defended her plan. Uh, she may not be able to pay for her plan, and she's having to, to lie about the edges and extremities of her plan. But she's got a plan. Kamala Harris doesn't have a plan. She doesn't have a plan on anything. She changes her mind. She she is is Trumpian in that regard, and that the president, as I mentioned earlier, can take a position and reverse himself on the position. Take vaping. Vaping is a great example here. Um, the president is walking back his vaping ban. The president was going to ban vaping and is now not going to ban vaping. Kamala Harris was for Medicare for all, and then she's not for Medicare for all. She's for criminal justice reform, and then she's not, and then she is, and then she's for nuance in it. She's for marijuana legalization, and then she's not. Uh, there is not an issue on the under the sun that Kamala Harris has not taken multiple positions. And it's not just one or two positions. It's not just flip-flopping back and forth. She's taking multifaceted positions on things where there should be an A or a B and not a C through Z. And somehow on many of these positions, Kamala Harris is able to find positions A through Z to infinity and beyond. I mean, she's making a 26-letter alphabet run to infinity with her various positions. It it's bizarre. It is genuinely bizarre to see a candidate who is elected in California, who is it was the uh, state attorney general in California, get to Washington and run for president and flail around desperately. And by the way, you should know this, that behind the scenes, the Republican senators in Washington, this is what I find so interesting. Republican senators in Washington would far rather hang out with Kamala Harris than with Elizabeth Warren. Which I find striking. You know, Elizabeth Warren uh, has people around her very Hillary-like saying, you know, she's a very warm and caring person behind the scenes. But behind the scenes, the Republican colleagues tell me that uh, she actually, uh, Elizabeth Warren actually, is not that warm and friendly. And she's a difficult person to to hang around with. Uh, just socially and in conversation with her, ha having a, a meaningful conversation about life. But with Kamala Harris, she's actually a warm and funny person. And, and they're, they're fine to hang out with her. 
uh, to the extent they they do, which isn't often, but but I've never had a Republican senator tell me that Kamala Harris isn't approachable. I've had multiple Republican senators tell me that Elizabeth Warren is not an approachable person, and I find that very interesting. Uh, and yet, on the campaign trail, she is floundering about, um, which she probably does need to get out. There's a political article right now that someone needs to tell Kamala Harris to get out. No one wants to tell Kamala Harris to get out. They're they're scared to tell her she needs to get out. What I find so hilarious is that they're doing it on super secret double background so that nobody knows who it is. Um, Nobody wants to be public telling her. Now, let's move to Georgia to a politician that a lot of people didn't like and suddenly have decided they like, that would be Brian Kemp. I mentioned the AJC polling the other day, but I also mentioned how the AJC is taking its poll and breaking it into sections and running stories every day on different sections. And the one was how the president's going to have a problem. Uh, the, the second was on David Perdue. The third was on climate change. And now we've gotten to the Brian Kemp edition of the AJC coverage of the AJC poll. I have gone through ad nauseum why the poll was wrong. Uh, the It was taken over a 10-day period, which is not good for polling. It was taken with too many graduate voters, which isn't representative of Georgia. Uh, the president only got 41% of the registered voter pool, uh, which isn't good because he actually got 50% of the state. So that suggests the poll oversamples graduates who tend to lean Democrat and also oversampled Democrats in general, which is a problem. And yet Brian Kemp got 54% of the vote. Job approval, 54%. You make adjustments, he's over 60%. In fact, I've talked now to multiple pollsters who are telling me they've seen polling in the state of Georgia where Brian Kemp is over 60% among voters. Large samples of people who voted in 2018. They are able, you know, you can go to the Secretary of State and you can get a list of people who voted in 2018. And you can cross-reference those to numbers and then have a computer randomly sample those people. You don't know whether they're Democrats. You don't know whether they're Republicans. But you can get your vote sample from people who were actually voters in 2018. And if you get your vote from people who actually voted from 2018 and you survey a thousand of them and you do an accurate statistical sample between Democrats, Republicans, and independents based on the turnout model of 2018 or 2016 or a combination of the two, you can get a pretty accurate poll of what people think. And it turns out when you do that, when you base your polling based on the pool of people who voted in 2018, which, by the way, oversamples Democrats. It oversamples Democrats because Republicans turned out at a midterm level and Democrats turned out at a presidential level. So if you're doing a voter pool sample in 2018 voters, you're going to be sampling more Democrats than Republicans based on the percentage of turnout and independent voters. You see, let's say, so your voter models, for example, you know how pollsters come up with a voter model. Pollsters come out with a voter model by looking at the percentage of people who voted in 2018. Let's say it is 50% Democrat, 40% Republican, 10% independent. So when you do your voter sample, you first of all, you base it on the registered voters who participated in 2018. That's a a million people, let's say. So you got a million people who participated in the election in 2018. And then you say, I'm going to make 50% of them Democrat. I'm going to make 40% of them Republican. I'm going to make 10% of them independent. When I survey, I'm going to call and ask. Are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Are you an independent? Oh, Democrat. Okay, I got add this one. Are you a, a, are you an independent? Well, I've already got too many independents. I don't need this person's vote. And so you narrow down. You you call five thousand households. You get a pool of a thousand people who meet your meet your profile. You've got of those people. Let's see how, how does the math work. You've got five hundred of them will be Democrat. Four hundred of them will be Republican. One hundred of them will be moderate. 
which are, are independent, which is great because you can also subsample the 500 and the 400. That's a big enough sample to give you a pretty good, ac accurate representation for your presidential race. That's not what the AJC did, unfortunately. But I know people who have done that sort of polling. And they went in and they broke it down based on the model turnout from 2018. They found people who actually voted in 2018, and that's their model pool of voters to call. And guess what? It was predominant Democrat. There were more Democrats in the in the survey than there were Republicans because in 2018, more Democrats showed up than Republicans. And guess what? Brian Kemp's popularity is over 60%. David Perdue's popularity is over 50% as well. Um, that polling strikes me as way more accurate than what the AJC did. And yet the AJC, even with an inaccurate poll that oversamples graduate voters who voted against Kemp and Democrats who voted against Kemp, Still found Brian Kemp at 54%. Still found Brian Kemp with a third of black support. By the way, I'm told in the private polling that Brian Kemp's black support is closer to 40%, not a third, not 33%, but closer to 40%. Brian Kemp's Hispanic support is closer to 50%, not 44%. So the AJC can be adjusted somewhat for that, bump the numbers up a little bit, and you get close to where these other independent polls are showing. But by and large, the bottom line is that Brian Kemp is extremely popular among black voters, white voters, Hispanic voters, Asian voters, across the board. He's popular with Democrats, although less so than with Republicans, he's popular with independents. He's doing a good job. The economy counts. There is news out that we are at tied for record low unemployment in Georgia. We have not seen as low an unemployment number since 1976. On top of that, we're at a record high jobs numbers. Now, how does that work? Well, there are more jobs in Georgia now than there were in 1976. So you've got and unemployment is tied for the lowest it's ever been, but the number of jobs available in Georgia is way higher than it was back then, and they're all full. So we got record high employment and low unemployment tied for 1976. Now, will it last? Probably not. More and more people think the economy is going to go downhill. But for right now, it's good news for Governor Kemp. People are happy with him. They like him. And they like, in fact, they like that the governor is preparing a rainy day fund. They like that he wants the house, the fiscal house of Georgia to get in order now, knowing that hard times may be coming. And they understand and they expect that hard times are coming. So for him to have a popularity rating in an AJC poll that is biased against him in its sampling at 54% is really, really good. You can call in and be a part of the program if you like, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I took my son yesterday to see Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, that is a good movie. If you, if you don't know the story of Ken Miles, uh, I, I, I won't give everything away to you. It, it, it's just, it, it, it was an entertaining movie, even if you knew the history, um, uh, and I did, uh, knew the history, knew the photograph, uh, that was so famous, uh, Ford winning Le Mans and, uh, then miles dying tragically thereafter. And I, I really wish they had, had ended the movie at the end of the race, as opposed to ending it after, after miles dies. Um, he was a, um, it, it, listen, it, it, I'm sorry if it's a spoiler, it happened in the 1960s, learn history. Uh, <laughs> um, Miles was a, a test driver. He was a racer. He, he was very hard headed, very opinionated, very strong willed. And after, uh, that famous race, uh, was getting a car ready for the next round and died tragically, uh, testing the car, uh, couldn't get out of the car as it caught on fire. Um, and I, I was kind of sad for my, my son really liked it. So I am, I've never been a car person. I have never, ever, ever been a car person. 
And my 10-year-old has developed a fixation with cars. The Mustang in particular is his favorite. He loves Mustangs. Uh, he likes the redesigned Camaro from Chevy, but he really likes the Mustang a lot. And uh, he wanted to go see this movie, and it was, it's totally appropriate for kids. Uh, there, there's some profanity in it, but it, it is a totally appropriate movie. Um, very appropriate, uh, very good stuff. And it was a totally entertaining movie. My wife who never goes to movies wanted to go see this movie as well. And she loved it, uh, just as much as the kid did. So I, I do recommend it. It's number one at the box office this weekend. That Charlie's Angels movies, my goodness. Uh, I saw the preview for Charlie's Angels and thought this is garbage. How can anyone, uh, think that this movie is going to be a good idea? And it is tanking, absolutely crashing at the box office. No one wants to see it, and I, I don't blame them. It looks absolutely stupid, and by all accounts, it is. I, some days, I think I could get a job being paid a lot of money to go to Hollywood and just watch the movies and say, no, this sucks, don't do it, and save them the heartache of, of putting a movie in the public. Some movies are just better left smothered uh, after being done than, than actually put out there for the public to see. Charlie's Angels. Why did we need a Charlie's Angels re reboot, particularly one that does not have Drew Barrymore? You know, the original Charlie's Angels movie was actually a pretty good movie uh, with Drew Barrymore and what is it, Lu Lucy, Lisa, uh, Lucy Lou, or whatever. It, it was a good movie. Um, it, it was it was humorous. The second one not so great. The first one was good, uh, but this was stupid. I just saw the trailer and could tell it was stupid. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari, though, it was a good movie. Now. I have avoided as best I can talking about impeachment because I'm getting bored with impeachment. I imagine most of you are as well. There is news on that front, though, and we need to explore impeachment. And I will finally, at the end of the show today, I will get into impeachment by the end of the show. I guess I mean the third hour uh, when we come back. Let me give you the highlights of what happened over the weekend on the Sunday shows with impeachment where the Democrats are headed. Nancy Pelosi trying to be high-minded and bipartisan or nonpartisan. It's not working. Uh, meanwhile, the Democrats are peddling conspiracy theories about the president's health because he went to Walter Reed and got a checkup and won't tell the media what it's about. They're convinced he's dying, and it's kind of sad. You can see him almost rooting for it, which is pathetic. It is that time for me to tell you all how awesome the Quip electric toothbrush is. Don't, don't fast forward through this. Stick around. Listen. Uh, because it's the truth. I use my Quip every day. My daughter uses hers. My wife uses hers. We got to get our 10-year-old on a regular brushing schedule. I'm, he's That's another story for another day. Quip is a great toothbrush, folks. Uh, you can go out, as I have, and buy the $100 Sonic toothbrushes uh, that supposedly do some sort of brilliant job. They don't fit in the back of my mouth. I don't think they fit in the back of anybody's mouth. They're so poorly designed. And you got to take the charger with you wherever you go. It's, it, they're terrible in design. The Quip was designed, you can tell, by Denison designers working together. It fits in the back of your mouth, so you can get a good brushing at the back of your teeth. Uh, it, it vibrates uh, great for two minutes, get your teeth really clean. Every 30 seconds, it pulses, You can so you know it's time to move it in your mouth to a different location, so you get an even cleaning. It is great, and every three months, they send you a new brush head uh, on a subscription service. It is great. Um, everything is designed. Great with Quip. It works on a single AAA battery. You don't have to carry a charger with you. I just, I, I really do love this product. I've been using my Quip for two years. Well before I ever advertised for them on radio, I was using Quip because I like them. 
Uh, it generates great healthy toothbrushing habits. My dentist keeps thinking I'm bleaching my teeth. I'm not. Just on and on, I could brag about it, but see it for yourself. Go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now. You'll get your first refill pack free. That's your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Getquip.com slash Erickson. Start brushing your teeth with healthy habits with Quip. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The final hour of the show today, the full number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you joining me this hour across the state of Georgia. Uh, real quick, uh, I occasionally try to highlight um, good things where you can be of help to people. Uh, the Sampler family in Marietta, they are heavily involved in adoption and foster care in the state of Georgia. Jason works with one of the big uh, foster care and adoption uh, Christian nonprofits in the state. And this family is trying to keep together four siblings. The These four kids live in Colombia, in South America. And their family has, uh, their parents have been killed. And so the Sampler family is willing to adopt all four of them to keep them together. Uh, the family is in danger of being broken up. Two of the children uh, being adopted by a couple in Italy uh, and uh, the other two being divided out. So you would have one with one family, one with another, and then two in Italy. And uh, all of the families have agreed if someone could could adopt all four children, it would be for the best given the trauma in their lives. The Sampler family, they live in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, they heard about this through an international adoption agency, and they are raising money uh, to adopt these four children and bring them into their home. Uh, but they need help. They need help because adoptions are super expensive. International adoptions are very expensive. Uh, they've got to have $40,000 to make this happen. And I am willing to use my microphone to cast light on this. Uh, if you want to learn more about it and decide whether or not it's something you might want to support, text the word support to 33777. Text the word support to 33777. Uh, learn about the Sampler family story and their willingness to open their homes and their hearts to four children who have lost their parents to keep these siblings together. I, I do think if you can keep four kids together, uh, it is, it's worth doing and they're willing to do it. And I'm, I'm glad that there's a couple like that out there willing to help. Uh, so again, uh, text support to 33777 to learn more. I, I have intentionally, if you're just tuning in now, this is where impeachment comes in. And I want to be very honest with you in that I'm, I'm increasingly put off by impeachment. It is a news story, and it is a relevant news story, and I try to cover the news of the day every day here on this program. But it's not really advancing anything. Uh, the Democrats aren't changing anyone's mind, despite what Nancy Pelosi claims or says or tries to do. I want to step back into last week real quick, and I want to talk about uh, Jeffrey Tubin, who I'm not a big fan of on CNN, but he did raise some issues about the Democrats' impeachment strategy. And, and I didn't get to play this audio the other day, and I want to play it now uh, because it's still deeply relevant. Listen to this. You know, I think the Democrats are making a choice here, which I don't know is necessarily the right choice. There are two witnesses 
who could really talk about what Donald Trump himself said about the relationship with Ukraine, because they are the ones who saw him every day. Remember, the def Republican defense here is that all these lower-level witnesses are just hearsay witnesses. Well, you have Mac Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, and John Bolton, the national security advisor. And both of them have refused to testify so far. Their legal position is somewhat different, but the, in, in fact, they have said they're not going to testify, you know, absent a court order. The, 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 as you heard from uh, Congressman Heck, they're not going to court. They are sim simply think they have enough without these two witnesses. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. I mean, I, that's a big sacrifice to give up those two witnesses. He says, Denny Heck says, we're not going to play rope-a-dope. Basically, I, he, he said says, that four times. I don't know. I mean, but it's you a, know, but I against mean, time. It's timing. It's timing. I, you I go to court, that. this is weeks or months. Yes. It, it is. No, I, obviously, it's they all about timing. They don't have weeks or months I, I, in I, their I, mind. Well, you know, but you could also do two things at once. I mean, you, you could pursue this case while you are, I mean, the, the Intelligence Committee hearing is, is next week and probably the week after. Um, you're going to have hearings before the uh, Judiciary Committee sometime later in December. I don't know why you give up on these witnesses without even trying to expedite a court hearing. I mean, maybe it is too slow. Maybe, and maybe they're too risky. I mean, maybe they think these witnesses will turn on them. I just think, th if you want to know the facts, you, you would really want to hear from Mulvaney and, and Bolt. Yeah, if you wanted to know the facts, you would really want to hear from Mulvaney and Bolton. This is this is becoming problematic in that the Democrats are really trying to shape a narrative. They're not really trying to find all of the facts. They're trying to put their best witnesses forward, not all of the witnesses forward. They're blocking Republicans. And by the way, on Elise Stefanik, you need to understand that uh, she is a she's a, a good Republican and she made a great name and show of herself on Friday. She's been attacked. Even George Conway, Kellyanne Conway has been called her trash. He's, he's totally in the uh, opposition to Trump camp right now. Um, but you need to understand that what she did on Friday was theatrics. Uh, Lisa Fonick, for those of you who aren't familiar, she kept trying to, to have time on Friday to ask questions and Adam Schiff refused to recognize her. The Republicans said they were shutting up a woman. Here are the facts. The facts are that the rules that were voted on give the chairman and ranking member both 45 minutes to ask questions. The only people that they're allowed to yield to are the councils for the Republicans and Democrats. They can't yield to members. Uh, when Stefanik and Jim Jordan say that, that Adam Schiff did yield to a Democratic member, what he yielded to was a Democratic member asking a question about the procedure, uh, not, a, not asking a question of the witness. So it was absolutely theatrics. But at the same time, uh, when Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker have stood up in the past and engaged in similar theatrics to defy the rules to ask questions, the media praised both of them. The, uh, Cory Booker's Spartacus moment, uh, Elizabeth Warren, her nevertheless she persisted nonsense. Um, they were in defiance of the rules, and the media loved it. They ate it up, and now they're calling Elise Stefanik trash for engaging in the same theatrics. There's absolutely a double standard, and in doing a double standard, it is very clear that the Democrats are only trying to tell one side of the story, uh, which means I shouldn't have to care about this. But, you know, I agree with Rob. I received a lot of messages this week from people saying, I just want to watch my soap operas. Right. People don't care about what they're doing. They know this is yet another witch hunt. The Americans know that this president is being harassed by the Democrats. Yes. And I don't think they see a way out of it.
Yeah, and, and I think one of the, we can talk about that a bit later in the show, is that the, the louder the Democrats kind of shout about what, what particular thing they're accusing him of, the more obvious it is that they're the ones who are actually guilty of that. Right. There's some really good examples of that. Rob, would you have Well, I was just going to say, Katrina, you bring up the soap opera. So we all know that impeachment is a soap opera. It's just not the soap opera that Americans want to watch, as a matter of fact. Well, it's not, and it's not even interesting or entertaining. I mean, you bring up witnesses who didn't witness anything. Right. So <laughs> there, there's no there there. I mean, even if there was something... Um, that we could we could talk about and debate, but there just really isn't anything there. I mean, the president was right. He made a phone call to an incoming president. He was doing his duty as president by saying, hey, we're hearing about these allegations. Can you look into this? Because people forget, if you back up the timeline just a couple of months, they forget that it was the Ukrainian government making the allegations against the Biden. So the president was well within That's his right to ask important. about it. That was a Fox News panel with Steve Hilton, and you can you can say it's just Fox, but you know Fox has the most eyeballs, and that message is resonating. And the Democrats are failing to penetrate the actual story uh, of of where things go. Um, there was also the issue of the president's tweet and tweet storm, I should say, during uh, Marie Ivanovich's testimony. Jake Tapper asked my buddy Scott Jennings about that on CNN. Your expression makes it look like, Scott, that you don't buy it. You don't think that's witness intimidation. No, look, I, I think the Democrats would be on a lot firmer ground here <clears throat> if they wouldn't want to continue to try to impeach the president over his tweets. That doesn't make it tactically smart. I mean, it was, I think this testimony could have come and gone Friday without much notice, frankly, had he not elevated yeah, uh, but putting that it certainly the was the highlight or the low light of the day. I mean, yeah, I think but, that's but putting it in the articles of impeachment uh, strikes me as is a is a massive overreach. And they may want to go back to their focus groups. You know, they've already focus grouped this once to try to figure out what to call uh, the impeachment. And uh, they may want to go back and see if impeaching a president over his tweets works. Yeah, the Democrats and their witness and see this is all theatrics. The president understands it's theatrics, and the Democrats aren't going to beat the president at theatrics. If the Democrats want to beat the president at impeachment, then they need to go beyond theatrics, and they're just stooping down to the president's level as they see it, and they're trying to play to their own base. They're not trying to persuade anyone. Again, I played this clip all earlier. This is Molly Ball. Uh, Molly Ball was with The Atlantic. She's now with Time. She's on CNN. She's actually the person who did the big profile of me in 2015, calling me the most powerful conservative in America. <laughs> um, this is Molly Ball on this. Fact is, this is a partisan impeachment. It was mm -hmm. uh, the, when they had the vote. It was a almost purely party line vote. Only Democrats are for it. They can't do anything about that if the Republicans don't want to come along. That's true, but they got to find a way to persuade Republican senators because they need two thirds of the Senate to convict, and they're not. Uh, and it doesn't help when you got Nancy Pelosi out there saying nonsense like this. Does the president get, as he says, to confront his accuser or get due what process? Confront his accuser. Confront the whistleblower. Presumably. Well, I will means. make sure he does not intimidate the whistleblower. So uh, the president could come right before the committee and talk, speak all the truth that he wants if he you wants, don't to, expect him if to, he wants to take the oath of office, or he could do it in writing. He has every opportunity uh, to present his case. But it's really a sad thing. I mean, what the president did was so much worse than even what Richard Nixon did. But at some point, Richard Nixon cared about the country enough to recognize that this could not continue. The Intelligence Committee uh, is uh, leading this part of the inquiry. There are other depositions that are being taken by more committees. So some of the depositions will continue, and then what takes place in the intelligence uh, public uh, will continue for another week. 
I don't know how much longer. I guess it depends on how many more witnesses they have. That's up to the committee. I don't guide that. That's up to the committee. Uh, okay. Uh, Nancy, it's really worse than y'all. This is not a democratic talking point that I think resonates. The president asked Ukraine to investigate a political opponent and Ukraine did not investigate. And they got the money that they weren't going to get. They still got it. Compared with Richard Nixon, must must we revise history? This is this is like the Stacey Abrams clip I played earlier of Stacey Abrams uh, revising the history of the Electoral College to make it a racist thing when it specifically was not. To say that what Donald Trump did is worse than Richard Nixon is to be ignorant of history, willfully so in Nancy Pelosi's case, because she she remembers it. She was alive then. I wasn't even born yet, and even I know what happened. Richard Nixon wanted to get dirt on the Democratic campaign for his reelection in 1972. And Republican operatives broke into water into the Watergate building where the Democratic National Committee had its headquarters and stole information relating to the 1972 election. And then Richard Nixon helped them, using the power of the presidency, helped cover up what was happening. It was a direct abuse of office. It was trying to get the FBI to investigate his political opponents, uh, firing um, the special prosecutor who was investigating what had happened. And it was a became a bipartisan thing. It is absolutely true, absolutely historically accurate to say that the Republicans— the entire time it was going on, pounded their chest and said, there's no there there. There's nothing here. There, there's nothing to report. Move on. There's nothing to see. And then the Supreme Court said that Nixon's tapes needed to be released. He secretly recorded his White House conversations. The Supreme Court ruled that as a matter of impeachment, those tapes can come forward. And Nixon promptly resigned because it was very clear that Richard Nixon was complicit in ordering and then covering up a break-in of the Democratic National Committee, among other things, in using the powers of government to investigate his political opponents. Now, it is fair for the Democrats to say that's exactly what Donald Trump wanted. He wanted a foreign, used the power of the presidency to force a foreign government to, to investigate a political opponent. And yeah, there is an argument to be made there, but it didn't happen. Uh, he didn't obstruct funds for Ukraine. They didn't know at the time money was being held up. They got the money. I, there, there are great differences between the president of the United States engaging in a sustained cover-up of a break-in of the Democratic National Committee and this president asking for a favor which he did not get. And if you're going to say that Trump is worse than Nixon, you are deranged when it comes to American politics. Was it good? No. Was it Nixon? No. It was not nearly as bad as what Nixon did in the grand scheme of things or even lesser schemes of things. It was not. And it's ridiculous for the Democrats to go there because it reinforces the Republican argument that the Democrats are making this all a partisan affair and they do not actually care about what actually happened. I, I got to play this audio for you. Um, our friends at Grabian have have done this master cut of uh, the Democrats trying to figure out how they're going to advance in 2020. Uh, listen to this. I think what the Democratic Party is going to do over the course of the next 18 months is walk and chew gum. And what do I mean by that, Brett? We must, as Democrats, walk and chew gum, and that's exactly what we're doing. 
Well, we're, Democrats can walk and chew gum. And, and we can walk and chew gum at the DNC. As I've said, walking and chewing gum. Reverend, I, I think uh, Democrats can walk and chew gum. I get the tenor of your question, and, and I understand that, but actually the American people can walk and chew gum. We've got to walk and chew gum. And frankly, the American people walk and chew gum, and all of our candidates can walk and chew gum. Um, she called this lawsuit a silly distraction. And I wonder if uh, you, your response to that. Well, we can walk and chew gum. And folks, let me assure you, Democrats know how to walk and chew gum. <laughs> That's going to be their 2020 strategy. They're going to walk and chew gum at the same time. We'll find out on Wednesday as they come to Atlanta to the Tyler Perry studio to debate with Pete Buttigieg moving into the lead in Iowa pretty significantly. And now Buttigieg is at the forefront. And, and I got to tell you, the campaign seems absolutely tone deaf. So, so Buttigieg's husband put out a picture on Instagram of Buttigieg at the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin and that um, it was, I mean, it was, it was just a, it was a nice picture. I think the caption was all something, just something like this guy, some such. There is a a meme on the internet, though, of uh, white gay dudes going to the Holocaust Memorial in in Berlin and putting the picture up uh, of of themselves, uh, selfies of themselves at the Berlin uh, Holocaust Memorial. And it has caught on uh, in the prevailing zeitgeist against Pete Buttigieg, where a lot of gay rights activists don't like the guy. And a lot of Democrats increasingly don't like the guy. And it's just another example of him being out of touch, putting a, a essentially a, a picture designed to be a an attractive picture of Buttigieg um, where he's standing in the middle of a Holocaust memorial. Who does that? And if it was a one-off thing, you, you could say, okay, no big deal. But there there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, Buttigieg has unveiled his plan for black families, and the stock photos he's used have come from Kenya from Africa for an American black family. On top of that, Buttigieg has also uh, required that people opt out of supporting Who does this? He's got a plan for black families. He has submitted it to various people, and he's telling them they need to affirmatively say no, they don't support it, or else they're going to be listed as a supporter. Uh, A left-wing publication called The Intercept ran the numbers on it, and 60% of the people who have supported Buttigieg's plan for black families are white. He's got a bunch of white people supporting his plan for black families. He doesn't have black people supporting his plan. So he's coming to Atlanta now tomorrow in uh, the run or on Wednesday in the run up to the Democratic debate, and he wants to unveil a plan to make uh, education more affordable for people. And that's going to be his thing. And he's trying to shift the conversation to make himself look like a front runner. But here's the problem for Buttigieg. Buttigieg has raised a lot of money from a lot of rich liberals. He really is something that white people like. Black people do not like. He continues to flub his rollout into the black community. He continues to do tone-deaf things. He's playing into every bad stereotype of of rich millennial progressives. 
the media is starting to call him on, on all that. I got to tell you, the, the way the media is turning on these people, they build them up and then they turn against them. Is it any wonder even the Democrats have a hard time trusting the media on stuff like this? And they're doing it with Buttigieg now, too. Uh, they're turning on Buttigieg. Uh, Buttigieg is bad now. He's got to get himself ready to be the front runner. Everybody is uh, setting their sights on him. We will see if he has the staying power on Wednesday night because they're going to be coming for him on that debate stage on Wednesday night. Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren both treat him very dismissively. Kamala Harris as well, who is cratering in her polling, is thinking she's getting beaten by an upstart mayor with a history of bad race relations in South Bend, Indiana. She's got problems with him. Across the board, the Democrats have problems with Buttigieg, and now he's going to be in poll position on the Democratic debate stage Wednesday night in Atlanta. And so he's coming, trying to trot out more initiatives that he thinks might appeal to black audiences. And he's not resonating with him. Y'all, it does not help that your stock photos come from Kenya for black families in the United States of America. But that's exactly what Buttigieg did. The tone deafness in all of this is absolutely staggeringly appalling that he would do that. You want some some extra fun here? <laughs> um, the continuing resolution uh, to continue to fund the government is about to run out. Yeah, um, there's a real question as to whether or not the president will... Uh, begin a shutdown of the federal government uh, in response to the impeachment. And he can because the continuing resolution that's been funding the government is about to run out. Um, rather problematic uh, for the Democrats and the Republicans right now. The president, they're not sure what the president is going to do. They're, they're going to continue to play this out and see. Uh, Joe Biden has spoken. Um, he was, where was he? He was, uh, at a rally and he's continuing to make his electability case against president Trump. No, it's not going to be easy to beat him. We're talking about this is going to be this, the kickoff. He is going to have a billion dollars. He's going to have an awful lot of, uh, the same kind of negative campaign that he's run in the past. And, uh, he is, uh, it's not going to be that easy to be. So we better be careful about who we nominate. Yep, uh, got to be careful who we nominate because he's going to be real hard to beat, he says. Real hard to beat. Uh, that's true. Uh, meanwhile, you've got Bernie Sanders out on the campaign trail. I, I don't... You know, I got to be honest here. Um, in, in fact, let me see. Real clear politics. Real clear politics. What is the polling average now? Just so we set the stage here uh, for this. Uh, Biden is at 26... Warren is at 20, Sanders is at 17. The remarkable staying power of Joe Biden in the real clear politics polling average is something to behold. Um, he started in December of 2018, before he was even announced, at 29. Uh, he's at 26 now in the real clear politics polling average, the lowest he has ever been. Whoa, what did I do to the graph here? Come on. Um, the lowest Joe Biden has ever been in the polling is, well, no, no, let me reset it here. Um, he's the lowest he's been is 20, it's 20. Yeah, well, the lowest he's ever been is, is it looks like now is he's at 26 and that's tied for the lowest. 
but he's never gotten above it. And Elizabeth Warren has only been able to to get close to him once. She she got it uh, twenty six point six to Biden twenty six point four, but he's hanging on, and he he's he's definitely. The trend lines haven't looked good for Biden, but he's holding on. He's he's five points ahead in, in the polling averages. And this translates poorly for the rest of the Democrats, but particularly it translates poorly for Bernie Sanders, who he just he can't get any more momentum because Elizabeth Warren has gotten ahead of him and Pete Buttigieg is outshining him and he's doing his best uh, and he's trying to play the the old school progressive. What I find actually very funny about it is that uh, millennials are backing Bernie Sanders over Buttigieg and Warren. If Sanders were to get out, Warren could potentially beat Biden, but Sanders is not going to get out. He thinks it's his turn, even though he's not a Democrat. That's the other thing. The Democrats humoring Bernie Sanders, who is not a Democrat. He's an independent. Why they're letting him in the primary process if he refuses to be a Democrat is, is beyond me, but... Here he is on stage. Uh, There's a relevant point to be made regarding impeachment on this. I think that what you're going to see in the next weeks to come is this president will be impeached and he should be impeached. And he should be impeached because he has used his office to obstruct justice. He should be impeached because he is in violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution and where he has very blatantly, I mean really incredibly, used his office to make more money for his family. And lastly, of course, he should be impeached because he has used national security aid to Ukraine in order to try to undermine a potential political opponent. Now, what's so interesting here is he lists a bunch of things before he gets to Ukraine that aren't in play with the Democrats. And you can kind of understand why some Democrats are frustrated with Nancy Pelosi, that she's not letting them have a free-for-all on impeachment. But Pelosi understands the clock. She's got to get something through the House of Representatives as quickly as possible. I got to tell you, though, if Sanders is supposed to be a juror, I I think our, our forefathers in this country did not appreciate the level of partisanship this country would get to. George Washington, ironically, I think did where he warned about uh, party politics. The rest of them did not. And in so doing, you've got Bernie Sanders who is running out there saying the president needs to be impeached for all of these things. Things aren't, they aren't even uh, things they aren't even talking about. How can Donald Trump get a fair trial in the United States Senate. How could he get a fair trial? If you got Bernie Sanders out there, Elizabeth Warren's out there, Kamala Harris is out there, Cory Booker's out there, you got six senators running. Almost all of them have taken a position that uh, Donald Trump needs to go, that Donald Trump is corrupt, that Donald Trump needs to be impeached. How can we expect him to get a fair trial in the Senate with the Democrats who are out to get him? I don't know that that's possible. Well, the the Republicans, to a degree, are pushing back on all of this. Um, here is is Kaylee McEnany. She is going on offense on behalf of the Republicans against Bernie Sanders, uh, not specifically per se 
about Bernie Sanders uh, going after the president. She's going after him on the billionaire tax that they want, where they've enlisted the New York Times and others, and Elizabeth Warren, going after him. But this is a message that actually is polling well with Repub- with voters, not Republicans. You need to understand that the majority of voters in this country, though they are somewhat jealous of wealth, they understand that the wealthy in this country can spend their money more responsibly than the government. And so this is an issue for the Republicans, and they're coming after Bernie with it. Whether you like it or not, you're going to start paying your fair share of taxes. Now, I hate to say this, but you know, this income inequality issue, beating up the billionaires, saying, come on, you can afford just a few extra million dollars in tax, that's a powerful line. How'd you go after it? Not to the extent that Bernie is taking it, though. He's tweeted that billionaires should not exist. Stuart, we live in an aspirational country. We live in a country where people want to harness the American dream, want to aspire to be a billionaire or a millionaire or a successful person one day. It's why 82% disagree with Bernie and told Cato billionaires should exist. So while we absolutely want all boats to be risen, and that's happening in the Trump administration, wages growing at the fastest pace in a decade and twice as fast for low and middle income Americans. We want that to happen, but we don't want to abolish the American dream and billionaires and the aspirational nature that makes this country great. Okay, we hear you. Kelly McEnany, thanks for joining us. Yes, uh, this is becoming an issue. You know, the New York Times ran a big story about FedEx this weekend, not paying taxes. Uh, FedEx is uh, Chief Fred Smith. And you need to understand, FedEx has been very embattled. Uh, I like FedEx. In fact, I I much prefer going to a FedEx Kinko's than I do to a UPS store. I think it is a better, it it is a way better um, organization. I think it is easier to get in and out of the Kinkos. They are uh, better at what they do. They have more services. The UPS guy is more reliable. Listen, and I I love uh, our UPS guy, our standard UPS guy. He's a great guy. Uh, The kids like him. My wife likes him. He's a great guy. But uh, UPS in and of itself, we've had all sorts of problems with him in our neighborhood, at our home, uh, in dealing with it, in trying to ship stuff with them. Uh, We never have a problem with FedEx. Well, FedEx has benefited from the tax cuts by the president uh, and the Republicans. And FedEx, according to the New York Times, says FedEx's tax bill has gone down to zero. FedEx has pushed back very aggressively on this and said that um, that the New York Times has gotten it wrong. And the chairman of FedEx, uh, Fred Smith, has released a statement saying he would like to debate Arthur Schultz, the publisher of the New York Times, and their business editor, because guess what? The New York Times paid no tax. The year the New York Times is attacking FedEx for paying no- nothing in tax in income taxes, the New York Times paid nothing in income taxes. And Fred Smith's point is, uh, what do you want to, who do you want to believe provides more value to the American economy? FedEx and all of its employees delivering packages or the New York Times and its new service? Which one delivers more to the American economy? Which one delivers more to the American consumers? And I don't think it's a debate that the New York Times will take. uh, And I don't think it's a debate they could win even if they took it. But there, so you do need to understand that FedEx did pay taxes. The New York Times has misrepresented their taxes. Uh, the New York Times has misrepresented the amount they've paid. But also there's this, why is it a big deal? Corporations don't pay taxes anyway. I'm actually in favor of abolishing the corporate income tax altogether because corporate uh, corporations do not pay income tax. 
corporations pass on the income tax to consumers who buy their products. Corporations do not pay income tax. The corporations that uh, pay income tax have raised their prices or they've reduced their workforce to cover the costs. And in so doing, you and I pay more. If you cut the corporate income tax, what would you have? Either more hiring or higher wages or lower prices. Corporations would get to pick. But we saw this same setup. We saw this exact same setup with the president's corporate income tax. The, the, or cut the, the very thing that they're complaining about at the New York Times. You cut the income tax and what happened? Well, you know, at, at, at my other job, the one that actually pays me a salary, I don't actually get paid for this job. Uh, it, the job I get paid for, I actually got a bonus check. They returned some of the profit to me as a, an employee because they weren't being taxed on it. I know plenty of people who got checks from their employers at various companies because the income tax got cut. I know businesses that were able to invest. They were able to buy new equipment and stimulate the economy. If anything, the corporate tax has worked tremendously to keep uh, the economy going at a time there's a global economic slowdown. What I find disturbing is that the New York Times and other outlets have decided that they can decide who pays a fair share, that they can publicly shame corporations for not. Meanwhile, the New York Times isn't paying it any either. Essentially, what we have is a media in the United States playing off jealousy. We have a media in the United States that is amplifying the cause of jealousy that you should be upset with FedEx because FedEx isn't uh, isn't paying taxes. Well, they're not. But what are they doing? They're either giving shareholders value and that helps a lot of people's 401ks or they're investing. And, you know, the New York Times is essentially arguing that, that FedEx didn't invest the way FedEx said it would. Therefore, uh, none of us are benefiting. It, it's nonsensical. And, you know, this gets to... William Barr, the attorney general, gave a speech to the Federalist Society. The left is excoriating him for it. I want to play you part of William Barr's speech to the uh, Federalist Society. Unfortunately, just in the past few years, we have seen this con these conflicts take on an entirely new character. Immediately after President Trump won election, opponents inaugurated what they called the resistance and they rallied around an explicit strategy of using every tool and maneuver to sabotage the functioning of the executive branch and his administration. The fact of the matter is that in waging a scorched earth, no holds barred war of resistance against this administration, it is the left that is engaged in the systematic shredding of norms and undermining the rule of law. It is the left undermining historic norms and shredding the rule of law. And they don't like to talk about it because everything's but Trump. But it is the left that is now deploying Antifa to harass businesses. It is the left that is chasing conservatives out of restaurants. 
It is the left that believes that uh, Christians should be forced to bake cakes and provide flowers for gay weddings, but liberals should not have to force conservatives to do anything. There, there's a report out this morning that Chick-fil-A is going to stop giving money to the Salvation Army. Why? Because it is the left harassing Chick-fil-A. It is the left out to get Chick-fil-A. It is the left shaming Chick-fil-A and other businesses, denying them access to franchises in, in public spaces because of their views. It is the left doing these things. It's not the right. It is the left upending historic norms in this country. It is the left shaking down businesses. It is the left silencing the right. For all of the blasting of the president for undermining historic norms, the reality, the truth is the left in this country is perfectly willing to shatter historic norms themselves. And in particular, the people who have coexist bumper stickers on the back of their cars are less and less able to coexist with anyone who disagrees with them. Those people who they disagree with have to be silenced, have to be punished, have to be driven from the marketplace, have to be boycotted. And that flies in the face of historic norms in this country, where now politics has become a religion for the left and the heretics must be burned. That's a real problem, and good on the Attorney General for calling it out. This just in, uh, the Georgia Government Transparency and Campaign Finance Commission, formerly the State Ethics Commission, has filed a lawsuit in Fulton County Superior Court against Stacey Abrams, 2018 gubernatorial campaign, and two other groups tied to Abrams for failing to fully comply with subpoenas for certain documents. Former campaign manager Laura Wargo said the campaign turned in thousands of pages of banking and campaign finance records, but refused to release communications requested between the campaign and other groups, including the New Georgia Project and State Senator Nakima Williams, then vice chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia. The commission is responsible for campaign finance law here in Georgia. They're able to investigate campaigns. What they're not able to do is use their power to investigate investigate, harass, or intimidate, uh, or go on a hunch that they think there may have been something that happened, this commission is in violation of its fundamental right to enforce campaign finance law. Uh, she called the investigation a political fishing expedition. Um, interestingly enough, um, the uh, executive director, David Amati, um, said in a statement, the commission is taking the same legal measures we've taken in all other cases where the respondents have refused to comply with lawfully issued subpoenas and called the allegations baseless. Uh, the Fulton County Superior Court filing says that Charles Wingo filed a complaint with the commission in August of 2018 alleging unlawful coordination by sharing personnel between the Abrams campaign, the Blue Institute, which was founded by Abrams, and other groups. Uh, this will be investigated. Um, GPB does, this is from Georgia Public Broadcasting, and does point out that the, um, that the State Ethics Commission director, executive director, had been a Brian Kemp supporter and a former donor of his, uh, interestingly enough. All right, then. Um, also if I, I mentioned it the other day, but just to reiterate, uh, Brandon beach in, uh, the Georgia sixth congressional district has stepped aside and is now going to run for his state Senate seat, uh, which is somewhat awkward. So I I've been supporting, um, Michael Caldwell in that seat. And I plan to continue supporting Michael Caldwell in that seat up in the Woodstock area. Caldwell is a great guy. 
Uh, he's been a great friend of mine, and uh, I really like the guy and think it's probably time to get him in the Senate. Um, he's been in the House. He's been one of the people fighting the Speaker. The Speaker, of course, is trying to make a play now for his seat, uh, trying to get someone much more uh, Speaker-friendly in that seat. But hopefully Coldwell will be successful and someone will get in the uh, State House seat that will stand up to the Speaker of the House still. Uh, Okay, Uh, circling back uh, on the president, the president is blasting the Democrats, claiming he is transparent while the Democrats are out there doing conspiracy theory mongering on the president. The president went to Walter Reed Hospital this weekend for a checkup. It was not on his public schedule. It was unpublicized and Democrats are in absolute meltdown that the president may be dying or something, and they, they want to be able to celebrate it. If so, and they're upset that the White House isn't telling them what's actually going on. It's a routine checkup by the president. Uh, but the president, meanwhile, is out there uh, pushing the idea that his is the most transparent administration ever. You don't want to talk about transparency? You know, I'll talk about transparency. I like transparency here, and I'm the most transparent president in history. And I'll tell you about what tampering is. Tampering is when a guy like Shifty Shift doesn't let us have lawyers. Tampering is one shift, doesn't let us have witnesses, doesn't let us speak. I've been watching today for the first time I started watching, and it's really sad when you see people not allowed to ask questions. It's totally, nobody's ever had such horrible due process. There was no due process. And I think it's, I think it's considered a joke all over Washington and all over the world. The Republicans are given no due process whatsoever. We're not allowed to do anything. It's a disgrace what's happening. But you know what? The American public understands it, and that's why the poll numbers are so good, and that's why other things are so good. What they're doing in Washington with that hearing, and by the way, it's a political process. It's not a legal process. So if I have somebody saying I'm allowed to speak up, if somebody says about me, we're not allowed to have any kind of representation, we're not allowed to have almost anything, and nobody's seen anything like it. In the history of our country, There has never been a disgrace like what's going on right now. So you know what? Uh, I I have the right to speak. I have freedom of speech, just as other people do. And he's going to keep on doing it. Y'all, listen, Democrats are really peeved by the president's talking points here. But I think it's actually resonating with people that the Democrats aren't playing by the same rules. And since they're not playing by the same rules, it makes it look like they're in a partisan fishing expedition themselves. And that doesn't work well with most people. We'll be back tomorrow.